we are sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, like I'm doing right now. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I'm Jody Klugman Rab, a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. I took a DNA test for fun that led to the shocking discovery that the man who raised me was not my biological father, that I am an NPE or a non-paternal event. And I'm Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons. I've been a genetic and family investigator in Northern California since 2015. Most of my work focuses on interpreting DNA results and locating biological family. And that's how I met Jody. This is Sex, Lies, and the Truth, a collection of stories devoted to unexpected DNA discoveries, like donor conceptions, adoptions, or falsified and misled parentage discovered from at-home DNA tests, like non-paternal events. These are real people talking candidly about the rejection, shock, vulnerability, or fears that shape their stories. Some will make you laugh, cry, and cringe. You know, just like your family, only with a shrink and genealogist on call. You know how you feel when you meet someone you instantly take a liking to? That's how it was for us interviewing actor, comic, author, and NPE, Tom Dreesen. Buckle in, folks. This is a bio as impressive as it is long, and he lives up to every bit of it. Tom has made over 500 appearances on national television as a stand-up comedian, including 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. He was a favorite guest of David Letterman and has hosted the show during David's absence. For years, he has been a regular in all of the main showrooms in Las Vegas, performing with Sammy Davis Jr., Liza Minnelli, Natalie Cole, Smokey Robinson, Mac Davis, Tony Orlando, and for 14 years in seven different casinos and toured the nation as the opening act for Frank Sinatra. As an actor, he's appeared in many motion pictures like Trouble with the Curve, my personal favorite, Spaceballs, Man on the Moon, HBO movies like The Rat Pack and Lansky, and has mastered roles on television shows like Columbo, Touched by an Angel, Murder, She Wrote, Facts of Life, and WKRP in Cincinnati. The first six years of his career, he shared the stage with Tim Reed as America's first black and white comedy team, and as history shows, they were the last. The duo recently wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American comedy in black and white, about their escapades touring the nation from 1969 to 1975, which is now in the process of becoming a movie. Tom's current book, Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra is at booksellers everywhere and talks about his NPE discovery as well as his illustrious career in showbiz. Let me start from the beginning. 
I'm born and raised in a suburb on the south side of Chicago, Harvey, Illinois. Harvey is 147 south from the from the loop of Chicago. It, it was a, a, a hardworking town, a blue collar town, steel mills and factories and and uh, uh, you know taverns. We had 36 taverns and all in the whole area, and mostly blue collar people. They worked in the factories. They uh, would on the way home stop in the corner taverns and have a few beers and everything. So that's the environment I grew up in. I was raised. Uh, I was born. Um, not far from there, and I was raised in the Bubba Tavern for a little while. And uh, I, it ended up, I ended up having eight brothers and sisters. You know, my mom was a bartender, and in, I shined shoes in all the taverns in my neighborhood uh, as a little boy. You know, there was a work ethic in my community that you only deserve in life what you work for. You know, that you, there was no welfare in those days or anything. So you, you had to work. Kids my age, I was eight years old, shining shoes. And, you know. Now, when I was shining shoes in all these bars, the last bar I would go to would be my uncle's tavern. And Frank Pulisi was his name. And my mom was a bartender there for her brother-in-law. And I would go there last. I'd go to seven taverns. And I'd go there last, wait for the shifts to change from the factories. And then I would go back out again to the taverns. But I would wait in that bar and I'd watch uh, my uncle tell jokes behind the bar. And he just fascinated me. This guy could, you know, uh, tell with his vocabulary, his vernacular, his timing, he could cause the sound to come out of everybody's mouth and fill the room like electricity and, and unite everybody. Everybody be united. It just fascinated me as a little boy. And, and I so admired this guy. And in fact, I used to tell some of his jokes, many that should not be told on a grade school playground, a Catholic school playground, you know, <laughs> but, I got, but I loved him. He was my, my favorite uncle and he loved me. He would slip me a quarter every now and then, you know, could I shine shoes for 15 cents? And if you got a quarter, that was a big deal. But he'd sometimes slip me a quarter or half an hour. Anyhow, I was very fond of him. Outgoing guy. And by the way, a very tough guy, uh, Italian, Sicilian, who took no guff from anybody anytime. I saw him throw teamsters out of his bar two at a time. If you use foul language in the bar, that, that was out of the question. You just didn't do that with women in the place. They didn't call the mafia in those days. They called them the syndicate owned all the jukeboxes and they would bring jukeboxes into every venue that, that could have one, a restaurant or a tavern or whatever, whether you liked it or not. Well, my uncle worked in a factory before he owned a tavern and he saved all of his money, bought the tavern and he paid a hundred dollars for a Wurlitzer jukebox, an old jukebox that played 78s. So <clears throat> when the mafia came after he'd been only open a few weeks, they tried to force this jukebox into his place and he had a confrontation with him. It's all in my book about that, but he told him, get it out of here. And they wouldn't get out of there. He took it on a two-wheeler and dumped it on the sidewalk and it broke. And the head of the mafia in that area came to his tavern. I was a little boy in, in a corner. And my mom and my, my aunt were like saying the rosary, you know. And he, the mob guy came in. His name was Dave Tuffinelli. And he confronted my uncle. And my uncle stood right up to him and told him, get it out of here. And he said, you don't put your jukebox in. And we put our jukebox in. I worked at a factory for years, built this place. And I own that jukebox there. And I'm not using your jukeboxes anyhow. Long story short. He confronted them and won. The mob guy, when he was leaving, he said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you have your jukebox. But you got to promise me, if you ever leave this tavern, you want a job, you'll come to work for me. And my uncle said, I would never work for the likes of you because he hated mob and he hated mafia. Now, that's my point. I'm setting up how tough this guy was. Took no guff from anybody. Everywhere I go, my name is Tom Dreesen. My father's name was Walter Dreesen. You know, and everywhere I go, people in the community are saying, hey, Polizzi, how you doing? I say, my name isn't Polizzi. My name is Dreesen. And Frank Polizzi is my uncle. They go, oh, oh. I think they thought look, it was my mom's brother, you know, instead of my mom's brother-in-law. As time goes by, now I'm about 12 and 13 years old. And I don't look anything like my brothers or sisters, but I look just like my cousins, his two, his two boys. 
And so I'm starting to realize at 12 and 13 where babies come from. I don't want to think that my mom and dad did this thing, let alone my my mom and her brother-in-law, you know. So now I'm a Catholic boy. I'm suffering from all this guilt and these are negative, these are impure thoughts and so forth and so on. But by the time I was 15 years old, I just had to talk to him. And one day I, I, he, I went to his house and he was working in the garage <clears throat> and I took him for a walk. I said, I'd like to talk to you. And we went for a walk. He said, what is it, Tommy? And finally I said, I think you're my biological father. And he stopped and he said, what makes you think that? What would make you think that? I said, because I don't look like my brothers and sisters. And everybody that talks to me, they say, hey, Polizzi. Hey, Polizzi. And, and I look like Don and Buzz, his two sons. You know? And I, and I said, and, and I just need to know. And, and, and let me digress. When I was nine and 10 and 11, there was an Italian carnival in our area called St. Donatus. And every time I got around them, I'd go to that carnival, that sound. And I, I, I know it sounds like BS, but that sound and the smells and dun, 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 I felt a kinship to this. I really did. And yet I thought I was Irish and German. I was in Dutch German. But anyhow, I said to him, this is how I feel. And he walked a little bit longer with me and he said, well, it's the truth. He said, and you can, you can tell the world if you want. You can tell everybody. He said, but it would ruin your mom and dad's marriage and it would ruin mine. You know, no one knew. My dad didn't know, Walter Dreesen, and my Aunt Margie, his wife, did not know. No one knew. It was a secret that him and my mom kept. And I said, I don't want to ruin anybody's marriage. I just needed to know. But after that, I kind of felt uh, odd around him. I used to feel very comfortable, but I felt uncomfortable around him. And I, I sort of avoided him. At age 17, I went in the Navy and went out around the world and all this kind of stuff. And I served in a Marine Corps unit. And by this time, I'm maturing. And, and when I came home on leave one time, him and I got together. And it was always it was fantastic after that. It was our little secret. No one knew. And I wasn't going to tell anybody, and, and nor was I. Um, you know, that, that was he. But the, I have to tell you, I also felt real bad around Walter Dreesen, even though my father was an alcoholic and was a terrible father. I mean, spent most of his time in taverns and all that. Nice guy, a very docile guy, though, you know. And um, anyhow, so whenever I'd see him, I, I just felt bad. And this, for this respect, that he, he was, while he was a heavy drinker and everything, he was a very intelligent man. And I thought that maybe every time he saw me, I, let, let me digress from there. He lived in fear of Frank Polizzi. My dad played trumpet, and Frank Polizzi had a band called Frank Polizzi and the Venetianeers. My dad played trumpet in that band. That's how he met my mom, as a matter of fact. And he saw Frank Polizzi in numerous fights. He, he, he told a story one time that Frank was in the middle of a song, you know, and there was people were dancing. And he, when he was singing, there was a guy fooling around with Frank's sister and giving her a bad time and grabbed her by the shoulder. Frank, in the middle of the song, he walked off all the band vamp. He knocked the guy out and went back on the stage and finished the song. <laughs> That's what my father, Walter Dreesen, I'll always say he's my father, you know, my dad, you know. Uh, but so he was afraid of Frank Blizzy because he was a docile man. I started to think maybe he knew he couldn't possibly look at me and, and look at his other sons and, and, and say that there's something wrong here. But he never said a word. He never, ever said it. And to the day he died, I never heard. And, and by the way, him and my mom, were, when they were both drinking, they would get in huge arguments. You would think in the middle of his drunken arguments, either he was that naive and didn't know, or he did know and, and, and never brought it up. So my, Frank Blissey, when he was dying, I went to the hospital. I flew in from California. By that time, I was in show business. 
and I was appearing on all kinds of TV shows and everything. And, and so now when I went to the hospital to visit him, I was by his bedside. He didn't have long to live. And we were all alone now. Everybody had left the room. And he said to me, I have to ask you something. Do you have any resentment about your situation? And I said, no. He said, Tommy, don't think just because I'm dying that you have to hold it back in. Whatever you have, get it off your chest. If there's anything you want to say or any anger or rage or anything. I said, no, none. What, you know, I said, I don't, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I think everything I am, everything I've come as a comedian, as comes to, I used to emulate you. I used to tell you jokes in the bar and I, I like telling jokes and all this stuff. So no, I, I don't have any regrets at all. I said, do you have any regrets? And he said, yes. He said, the one thing I regret is that every time I saw you on television, on the Johnny Carson show or all these TV shows, if I'd be in a bar with people and you'd be on TV, I couldn't say to them, that's my boy. He said, that's the one thing I regret. I said, well, one day I'll receive an award in show business and I'll accept it in your name. You know, and he turned his head and it's the first time I ever, he's a tough guy. I ever saw him cry. Tears came down his eyes, you know, and, 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 and to end this story that years later, I received the Ellis Island Medal of Honor Award, uh, on Ellis Island where he came when he was seven years old, uh, on the SS Italia. And he came to Ellis Island and I received the Ellis Island Medal of Honor Award for all the charity work that I'd done for, it was for humanitarian service to your country. And, uh, and so when I received the award, I accepted it in his name. My aunt never knew, my aunt Margie, his wife. But my mom knew that I knew. And she was very uncomfortable. And I sat her down one day, long before she died. I knew she was a Catholic Irish woman. So she probably went to confession, got this off of the, and she didn't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> but I told her, I said, Mom, I don't care who planted the seed. First of all, I said, Dad never put his arm around me, never said, I love you. Of course, he didn't do that to any of the children. I said, but he never took me fishing, never took me hunting, never did anything that fathers do with boys, never played ball with me. I said, so, you know, it doesn't matter to me who planted the seed. I'm here. And, and she said, well, Tommy, you know, uh, you know, I'm glad you, you feel that way. And I, and uh, I said, besides, mom, if that seed had never been planted, I wouldn't be standing here telling you how much I love you. And she said, well, then this will be our secret. Thank you, Tommy, for understanding. And, you know, I, I can understand her fear. She had the grandchildren and things like that. And so, you know, but now everybody's passed, everybody's gone. And that's why I came out with it. I asked Tom about the physical reactions he had at the Italian festivals, knowing as I do about the intuition many NPEs have regarding the inalienable bond of biology. I mean, I've done so many Italian charities and things like that. But even as a kid, I gravitated to those kind of guys. And my cousins, Buzz and Don, I was real close to them. I really felt an affinity to them and, and, and loved them both dearly and still do. I mean, you know, one of them has passed. But the difficult part is my brothers and sisters, you know, how, how you know, I, I didn't want to make them uncomfortable. So I kept it to myself. Now, my older brother picked up on it. He knew right away. I mean, he knew. It was no shock to him. He, he was also a very strong man and, 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 and three years older than me, but helped me learn a work ethic. You know, he, he took me shining shoes. He took me caddying. He took me uh, setting pins and bowling alleys. We had a paper route. But um, first of all, he had no love for my uh, Walter Dreesen because he, he thought, you know, obviously the man was drinking all the time. He's in a warm bar. We're freezing in a shack. You know, my brother and I used to go steal coal off the railroad tracks, you know, off the, the cars that would come by. And I'd jump up at time and throw coal down because there was no heat in the shack. So he, he had very little respect for Walter Dreesen. 
Now, all of my brothers and sisters have accepted this, except for my one sister didn't for a while, but she does now. Uh, for a long time, she really didn't want to hear this, you know, because I had revealed it after everybody was dead and gone. A guy from the Chicago Tribune was doing a big story about me, a magazine story about my career and all that stuff. And I just one day opened up to him about this. And he said, do you mind if I print that? I said, print it. That was the difficult part. How are your siblings who I love dearly? Because again, we bond as kids and, and I didn't want to hurt them, you know? And um, so it, it turns out that everybody's okay with it now. It is what it is, what it is. You know? Tom made the choice early on to keep the secret out of respect for family relationships, understanding the impact it would have on both his parents and maternal on uncle's marriage. He did this all the while knowing that the interlude between his mom and uncle wasn't a single event, but actually a long-term affair. Asked how it really felt for him to live with this secret, true to any comic, he ends with a joke. In my mind, I did not suffer any trauma. I didn't, it didn't make me do one thing or another. I, I, I didn't feel any drama about it. I just would push it in the back of my mind. You remember when you're 12 and 13 years old and 14, you don't want to think your mom slept with another man. You know, that kind of, you know, that you don't understand that. It being the ways I read. But then when you become a man and you're around, around the world and you're going to become a, a guy, the, the, what's the expression? We have to sow our wild oats. Some of it starts making sense. In the neighborhood I grew in, everybody drank. I mean, you know, then you're going from bar to bar drinking. You meet a girl here and you meet a girl and you have an affair. All those things kind of make sense. You know, you wake up in the morning after several drinks and go, maybe I shouldn't have done that, you know, or something like that. But the point is, it starts, you start understanding your mom. As a little, as I got older, I began to say, ah, so what? So what? And besides, I love my mom. I mean, my mom and I, and I were close. And, uh, and, and again, like I say, in the end, I don't care who planted the seed. I'm here. You know, so the, I think there are so many things that are inherent in us from our biology. You know, but, you know Frank Sinatra used to tell me, uh, uh, I'll never forget uh, when, I, when I was still with him. Uh, he said, one time he said, he said, Sicilians don't cry, Tommy. Sicilians don't cry. They cry alone. They don't cry. They cry alone. They don't cry in public. I said, well, I'm half Irish. He said, well, Irish cry when they change bus drivers. In a recent episode with Richard, we learned that he was naturally drawn to the same interests as his bio father. So I was curious about Tom's perspective on how his career choice was influenced by his bio father, Frank. He was behind the bar in his tavern. But in my neighborhood, those guys behind the bar, they, they, they name, their name would be on the marquee on front, Alice Curvin, uh, Polizzi's Tavern, uh, whatever. So the guy behind the bar was like on stage. So when I'd go in every night and Frank was telling jokes and everything, you know, uh, it, it, it kind of was like he was on stage. And plus he had a little band that he, that he had, you know. Uh, so I think that, that, I think that has something to do with it. As I started liking telling jokes and stories like him when I was even, I was in the service. I never thought I'd be a comedian. It was the furthest thing from my mind being a comedian, it, but I did like making people laugh. And, and I wrote a poem years ago when I was first started touring with Sammy Davis Jr., but I, it's in my book. It's a closure of my book, by the way, but I'm not going to do the poem for you, but the opening lines are as far back as I can remember or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. And again, everything comes in full circle, doesn't it? You know, you know, that he came over on Ellis Island and I received the award on Ellis Island and used his name. I mean, that came full circle. I'm, I'm going to digress here for a minute. Forgive me. But this is what it's like 
opening for Frank Sinatra. You know, it's five minutes before you're going out at Nassau Coliseum. Now, when I met Frank Sinatra, I'd already done like 30 or 40 Tonight Shows. I toured with Sammy Davis Jr., Smokey Robinson, Natalie Cole, Gladys Knight, Liza Minnelli. I turned to a lot of people. I was a veteran, <clears throat> but I had never opened for Frank Sinatra. And there's 20,000 people, 20, people in the arena. And we did this all over the country. But the first time, like Nassau Coliseum in New York, there's 20,000 people and you're in the round, you're in the center and they're all around you. Oh, you know, and it's five minutes before you're going on. And this is what your assignment is. I want you to go out there and for the next, uh, 45 minutes, I want you to hold their attention for 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh for 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing. I want you to hold their attention and make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings and the emotions of 20, thousand people, no props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no orchestra, no special lighting, nothing, just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Tom, not one of them came to see you. <laughs> so, so that was different from being behind a bar telling people, because I was a bartender like my mom and, and like Frank years later when I came on the service and I would tell jokes behind the bar. But there was a whole lot of difference between telling jokes behind the bar and telling in front of, open in front of this, this icon, you know. I had a slogan on my desk for years, and I still have it. It said, if it is to be, it's up to me. You know, And I knew that when I was a little boy, if I was going to get food in the house, because this drunken father of mine, in Branca, then if it is to be, it's up to me. I had to go out there and get it. Um, if I was going to become a success, I, I'm not, I don't have a degree from academia. I got a doctorate from the streets. I grew up on the streets. And, and, and so... And I think that's what made Frank Sinatra and I very close because he didn't have a degree from academia either, but he had a doctorate from the streets from Hoboken. You know, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm getting all over the place here. Another thing that connected me with Frank was he, he was a street guy like me. And when we get alone in the car, like he, he only stayed up till dawn. He, I mean, he stayed up every night till dawn, whether we were on the road or off the road. Some nights we just go riding around the car in the desert when I was staying at his home in Rancho Mirage. And he became a kid from Hoboken, and I became a kid from Harvey, Illinois. Not, he wasn't the great Frank Sinatra, and I wasn't this comedian. We were just two guys from the street talking about our neighborhoods and growing up, you know. But also, he was a lot like Frank Polizzi, or I should say Frank Polizzi was a lot like him. I mean, they both were singers, although one was a singer of great magnitude. You know, they both were Italians. And Frank was half Sicilian. And um, they both were about the same size and both didn't take a whole lot of crap from anybody. You know what I mean? And um, so there were, there were things in common that they had in common. And Frank Polizzi used to always say, I don't trust a man who doesn't drink. And Frank Sinatra said the same thing. <laughs> and I told Frank this story that I told you about my relationship and about Frank Polizzi. And he, he listened to it and he said, Tommy, that goes on in families far more than you'll, you'll ever know. It, it isn't bad news for me. And I'm perfectly fine with it. You know, and it, now I'm, I'm explains a lot of things. You know, my feelings. So, so I'm, I'm perfectly content with it. I, I'm at peace with it, you know. And I was at peace with, with him, you know. The, the only thing, I did not want to hurt Walter Dreesen or Marge Polizzi. I didn't want to hurt my aunt. She was like, she was my favorite aunt. She adored me and I adored her. I just thought the world of her. And in fact, the interesting thing, when I came home on leave from the service one time, I was in, in a local tavern with her, with, my, with Frank Polizzi and my Aunt Marge my mom's sister. And we were laughing, having fun. And 
they had a little tiff, not, nothing, not a big argument. So, and I sided with Frank. I said, oh, I think Uncle Frank is right about this. And she said, Tommy, you know what's interesting? Ever since you're a little boy, you always stuck up for your uncle, and I'm your blood, not him. And he was standing behind her when she said that. And, and, I, and I looked, and he had this look on his face, and I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. And I gave her a hug. I said, I said, now, and she went to the ladies room after that. And he looked at me and I said, wow. But, you know, even when I was a little boy, when I was five years old, he went and bought a cowboy outfit and he gave it to me and he put me up on the bar and they put the cowboy outfit and had two little six years. My brother Glenn was three years older than me and he looked kind of sad. He said, Uncle Frank bought you a cowboy outfit, you know, and Frank's argument that was, oh, he said, oh, Glenn, I think he gave him 50 cents or something. He said, he said. They had this thing on sale and it was Tommy's size. You're too big. It wouldn't have fit you. It was the only one they had left. That kind of thing, you know, and, and, and just, you know, but he would do little things like that, that I, you know, and he, you know, as we talked, he told me, so he said, you don't know how many times he said, you would come in the bar. He said, and, and I'd look at you. And he said, a couple of my real good buddies would look at me and they'd look at you and they'd, and they'd look at Frank and shake their head. He said, but you don't know how many times I also wanted to interfere. You had holes in your shoes. I mean, you know, we had holes in our shoes, raggedy clothes. Uh, you know, we had the shack we lived in had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. You know, we had to boil water and everything. You know, so we were, we were raggedy poor. If you had holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in there. If a window broke, you stuck a rag in it, you know. And he wasn't, his, he owned a tavern and they had an apartment next to it. And they didn't live like that at all, his two sons. So I think he might have wanted to interfere, but he couldn't. He said, I couldn't do for you and not do for everybody else without drawing a whole lot of suspicion. Well, you know, I, I thought about this a lot. Had I truly loved my father, you know, Walter Bishop, had he been the kind of dad that went to ball games with me and did all these kind of things, you know, uh, I would have felt that loss. I, it might have been more traumatic for me. Speaking with Tom is like taking a tour of a history museum, listening to an inspirational talk, and a night out at a comedy club all at the same time. He also gives motivational speeches and shared an anecdote from an audience of young men that said they didn't ask to be born. Wait until you hear his response. I don't want to give you a biology lesson, but when the male and the female make love, from the male comes five million seeds. Did you know that? Two and a half million die instantly, the other millions die along the way, and soon there's only 100,000 seeds left, and there's 15,000, there's 10,000 seeds left, there's 100 seeds left. I said, then there's 10 seeds left, five seeds left, four, three, Two, one, you, you. And I pointed at him. I said, don't ever tell me you didn't ask to be here. Bullshit. You fought to be here. Applaud yourselves. You all won. Applaud yourselves. So I, that's the way I feel about our situation. I won. <laughs> Tom is such a character. It's really just better to let him tell you about himself, his book, and sign off the episode. The book is called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. But it's basically a little boy with a shoe sandbox, my childhood, going from bar to bar in his neighbor Channing Shoes, trying to make money to feed his brothers and sisters. And he hears Frank Sinatra on the jukebox, which I did. And years later, that same little boy is carrying Frank Sinatra's coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So it's that journey and all the ups and downs and the struggles I went through, getting knocked down, physically knocked down, as well as literally knocked down. The, the hardships of the, 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 the years in the service coming out, the struggling, the I was with America's first black and white comedy team, Tim Reed and I, who later became Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati. And for your younger listeners, he was um, the father on the show called Sister, Sister. Tim and I 
We're America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. The dues we paid. When there were no comedy clubs in America, Tim and I, 1969 to 1975, doing riots all across the land, not unlike it is now, by the way. And, and Tim and I would go anywhere there was racial tension. We did colleges, high schools. We did 11 prisons in one year. All that's in the book. And that journey, when the team broke up, me struggling to get to the Tonight Show, uh, my, my wife, my ex-wife, uh, I forgot her name. Oh, yeah, plaintiff. Um, she, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, she hated show business and wanted me out of show business. So, and so the struggles I had with that, three children and, 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 and her and I separating, getting back together, all those struggles to the Tonight Show, the Johnny Carson Show, to my life changing the turn with Sammy Davis Jr., Natalie Cole, God of Sight Pips, Smokey Robinson, Mac Davis, Tony Orlando and Don, all those, that journey to finally to Sinatra. And uh, 14, almost 14 years turn with Frank in 45, 50 cities a year. And, and all of that, and, and, and the joys and the sorrows and the triumphs, and then in, in the last chapter, which I won't reveal to you now, but the last chapter is where a real moment came in my life where I wasn't sure how much longer I was going to be around and how I had to stand up to that, you know. And, uh, and, and, and here I am, you know, and I'm, I'm still here. Laughter is healing, you know. You know, it's not a theory anymore. Laughter is healing. Uh, it, you know, we always have known that laughter is a psychological deterrent, that the brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. So if you're watching a comedian or, or watching someone funny on TV, you're not thinking of your problems. So it's a psychological deterrent. Now, because of Norman Cousins, the editor of Saturday Review, uh, he was dying of a terminal illness. He was in a hospital. Doctor told him he had a heart condition from stress in his life. And he laid in the hospital and thought, if, and they told him he didn't have long to live. He thought, if stress negative input made me ill, then positive input should make me well. So he checked out of the hospital and he Watch I Love Lucy Beeman's Candid Camera, Three Stooges, Marx Brothers. Um, and he, he, he lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. He wrote two books, one called Laughter Math and the other book called The Anatomy of an Illness. What they found out, UCLA did research, that when the human body laughs, because of his books, because the human body laughs, brain uh, endorphins are released from the brain into the bloodstream. That's why after a hearty laugh, you go... Oh, and tears come down. And oh, that sense of well-being, your body's going through an actual chemical change. So laughter is not only psychologically a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. So therefore, comedians are physicians of the soul. So you can call me Dr. Dreesen if you'd like. Thanks again to Tom Dreesen for appearing on the podcast. We always love hearing about DNA and PE stories, but it's an extra special treat for us to get to talk about showbiz stories too. Go out and get yourself his book, still standing at any retail bookseller. Sex, Lies, and the Truth is written and produced by Christina Fitzgibbons and Jody Klugman-Rab, two moms and professional women living the dream. We crack each other up, we can sniff out the truth, and we help people tell their stories. If you or someone you know would like to tell their story, you can reach us at sexliesinthetruth.com. If you are a fan of Sex, Lies, and the Truth and want to support us, you can do that through Patreon. Patreon is a really cool platform where fans of shows like ours can pledge a small amount each month, even just a few dollars, to support the show. You can find us there at www.patreon.com forward slash sex lies and the truth.